opposed to the dance. We're opposed to card playing. We're opposed to social drinking. We're opposed to divorce and remarriage. I remember one family in our community when I was growing up where the man was divorced. And you said it behind, you whispered it. it. It was too shameful to even talk about. He's divorced. It was just unheard of. All the churches basically stood against it. Women's role in the church, there were no, there were no uh, women leaders in the church. It's hard to believe that, that, that all those things <laughs> were at one time issues in the churches. All right? And then things changed. And that culture war was basically lost. And that's the generation we're in now. Now, how did this happen? Well, this, I'm going to describe to you a scenario that has played itself out over and over and over again. It played itself out in the Church of the Brethren. In fact, I just finished reading uh, not too long ago the history of the Church of the Brethren. It played itself out in the Church of the Brethren. It played itself out in the Church of the United Brethren. It played itself out in the Church of the Moravians. It played itself out in the Church of the Methodists. It played itself out in my lifetime in the church, in the Brethren in Christ Church. I remember when the Brethren in Christ Church were very plain, in some respects more plain than even the Mennonites. And it certainly played itself out in the conference Mennonite churches, which I grew up in. Now, how did this play itself out? Well, it played itself out by people beginning to realize that there were some churches that had allowed form to take precedence or to uh, be more important than a genuine spiritual experience. And so they began to talk about these cultural norms. What I just described to you were cultural norms. There were norms against movies. You, churches took action if people did these things. Uh, they began to say, well, this is legalism. This is dead tradition. We need to replace this by a more spiritual approach. Is this starting to sound a little bit familiar? Okay. We need to focus on the internal experience. If we have genuinely spiritual people, they will be able to apply the principles out of their own individual hearts. That sounds really pious, doesn't it? Okay. And so, we're going to get rid of most of these... Uh, traditional things. We're going to get rid of these uh, legalistic things and uh, all of these external pressures that uh, uh, we had, cultural norms, we sometimes call them. And we're going to replace them with a revivalistic approach. And we're going to get everybody really spiritual. And we're going to teach them to apply principles of simplicity and principles of modesty. And uh, it'll just basically... We'll have a simple, modest group of people without all of these pressures and all of these cultural norms and all of these externals. Well, <laughs> the idea was that a unity of practice would be replaced by a unity of principle. That was the assumption. We'll get the principles well established and the practices will take care of themselves. And we'll give some general teaching on modesty and simplicity. But basically, we'll leave it up to the individuals then to apply these wonderful principles that we will be teaching. 
and uh, everything will work fine. And dead uniformity will give way to a vibrant variety of simple, modest, godly applications. <laughs> that sounds all very familiar to some of us, okay? I grew up in a church where I don't think you would want to go today that that's what I heard as a teenager growing up. Now, my dad was saying something different, <laughs> but the church I grew up in was saying all this stuff I'm saying. But what you don't realize when you're using that rhetoric is you have just opened the door to self-expression and individualism. Okay? That's what you've done. Okay? Because you see, standards of practice, culture, if you please, is something we all do together. Okay? When you say we're going to allow, we're going to get individuals all vibrantly spiritual, and then we're going to let them make their applications. That all sounds very pious. It all sounds very right. It all sounds very superior. But you have just said, every person now is going to do what is right in his own eyes. <laughs> That's what you just said. Now, you're going to hope that you're training their eyes. <laughs> but you have opened the door to self-expression. Now, what we don't often understand is self-expression was the thing the church feared the most throughout its history. Even in music, for a thousand years, the church required that the plain song be sung. Those songs had no authors listed, no composers listed. There were thousands of those plain songs written. They were not metered. They did not cause you to tap your foot. They were very plain, anonymous melodies. Now, they knew that the Greeks and the world did something different from music. I'm using music as an example. They knew that the world had music that caused you to tap your feet. In fact, caused you to dance. And that the world had composers that had names attached to the music. Now, this all sounds very strange to us because we haven't gone down the road of the plain song. Now, the Amish still do. They're still, I, I sometimes think in the area of music, they may have the last laugh. But anyway, <laughs> but I, I just give that as an example. The thing the church feared was self-expression. Self-expression was the ethos of, of, of Greek culture. Express yourself. You know, let everybody know who you are. And so this whole idea that we're going to leave, we're not going to have a unity of practice has left it up then finally to the individual. And now we hear people wondering why the church is struggling so much with individualism, with pride, with rebellion, stubbornness, disunity. We once had a culture that encouraged those things, and we'll talk about that later. Self-expression won the day, and the culture wars were lost. You know, it's interesting, in Matthew 24, verse 12, it says, the love of many shall wax cold. Did you ever notice what the cause was? You would think from what, you hear, what I heard as a boy growing up, that your love waxes cold if you're too legalistic. But the Bible says 
that because of iniquity, because of lawlessness, the love of many wax cold. And that's the part that the church did not realize. And so what you have finally at that point is an endless critique of individual decisions. You sit in brothers' meetings and you go round and round and round and round for each little individual problem that comes up. Now, <clears throat> Melvin Lehman said something in our church not too many, about a year ago, that uh, gave me the courage to address this subject. He said what I have long suspected, it is futile to fight against the world's culture. That is futile. You will lose. You will not win that battle. I watched church after church lose that battle. They fought and they fought on these individual issues. And you lose that battle. You can't win that one. He said the only way to combat another culture is to create your own culture. Okay? I'll quote him. I'll just give it the way he gave it. The effective way to win a cultural war is to create a culture. A culture without boundaries, he said, is not a culture. He also said, I'm quoting him now, <laughs> a robust church culture gives its members a sense of identity and a sense of belonging. And it answers the two most important questions of life. Who am I and to whom do I belong? A church culture answers those two questions. All right? He also said some church cultures grow vibrant Christians and some cultures do not. Now Paul calls, the Apostle Paul calls for a countercultural approach. He says, don't let the world press you into its mold. It has a culture. Don't let them press you into that culture. The Apostle John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. He's talking about tangible, visible things. He says, don't let the world entice you with its things because with its things, there's always a philosophy. You might not be aware of it, but it is, okay? There's always a philosophy behind what the world does, all right? So, <clears throat> I'm gonna start, I have four points this morning. Culture demonstrating, I'm going, demonstrate, I'm going to take an example from the Bible, uh, a very interesting example, and then I want to do uh, uh, the second point will be culture defined. I'm going to explain what culture is. And then number three, culture disclaimed. What are the things people say against culture? What, what are the disclaimers? And then culture defended. That'll be my last point. Culture demonstrated, culture defined, culture disclaimed, and culture defended. Now, for culture demonstrated, I want you to turn to Jeremiah 35. <clears throat> this is the story that you probably re remember, maybe uh, not very specifically, but it's a story about the Rechabites. Uh, this story begins back in Exodus chapter 2, uh, where Moses invited his father-in-law, Rule, or Hobab, uh, to go with them and with his family to Canaan, and they went along, all right? But they did not basically ever assimilate with God's uh, 
well, they, they, I think they identified with God's people, but when they got to the promised land, you have to go through scriptures and piece some of this together, and, and the names, uh, there are different names attached to it, so I'm going to try to put it together for you. Uh, so there was a man by the name of Heber, who was a descendant of Rule or Hobab. He took his family and settled in the northern part of the land near the Sea of Galilee, and they became friends sort of with the Syrians, uh, and that's why Jael, remember she was the... Uh, uh, wife of, um, uh, let's see, what was, uh, I forget his name, uh, Heber, he was he, her husband was Heber. She was Heber's wife, and that's why Sisera, when he fled from the Israelite army, he went to this uh, Heber's house, to Jael's house, because the family had been near Syria, and they had some relationships there. And of course, you know what Jael did. She drove a tent peg through his head. That, this is the family we're talking about. So they had always been a little bit separate from the rest of the Israelites, okay? First Chronicles says they worked as scribes. They must have had a real interest in, in uh, uh, whatever written words there were at that point. And then we come down to Ahab's time, and there was a man by the name of Jonadab, and his father was Rechab, and that's where we get the Rechabite name, all right? So what happened uh, in Ahab's time. Well, um, Jonadab saw how wicked, in fact, uh, um, uh, Jehu took Jonadab along to destroy Ahab's house. So he saw how, how utterly wicked these people had become. And so he had given some commandments to his family. And that's where we want to pick up the story. <clears throat> so, so here was this family that had lived somewhat apart, uh, and you'll see why here in just a moment. And uh, had learned that city life, Ahab's life, was not a good life. So what did Jonadab do? Well, I want you to start reading at verse 5, where it says, <clears throat> um, I'm sorry, I'm in Isaiah, it's, it's Jeremiah that I want. Just a second here. I want to start reading in verse uh, 6. Uh, what happened here was God told uh, Jeremiah to bring this family into the temple and to put wine before them and tell them to drink. And you all know the story, they wouldn't drink. And this was their answer. We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. That wasn't God's command. This is just dad. Neither shall you build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyards, nor have any. But all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you be strangers. He was giving his family a culture. This, didn't come out of, this did not come out of any command that Moses ever gave. This, I mean, God told them when they went into the land, they'd have houses, they'd have vineyards and all that. And they did. But he observed what had happened to these people who had all these things. And he said, my family's not going to do this. It'll be much safer if we continue living as nomads. We'll live in tents. We'll travel from place to place. We won't have uh, crops and animals. and We won't accumulate any wealth. We're going to live as nomads, a sort of a subsistence living. And, we're, and, and I'm, I'm going to command that my family does this forever. Well, let's keep going. Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab. Now, this is 300 years later. 
That would be like my ancestor, who came here probably about 300 years ago, would have laid down some basic cultural mandates for his family, and I'd still be keeping those 300 years later, exactly like he, he laid it down. All right? So he says in verse 8, Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he hath charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we our wives, our sons, our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in, neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed. But we have dwelt in tents, and have obeyed, and have done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. Now why were they in Jerusalem? Here it is. But it came to pass, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land, that we said, Come, and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans, and for fear of the army of the Syrians, so we dwell at Jerusalem. And so there they were, <laughs> tested on these principles laid down. A culture, if you please. Uh, may I use the word man-made culture? Will you let me do that? A man-made culture... And they're keeping it three years, 300 years later. And God's prophet is telling them to drink wine. Now, you'd have surely thought, <laughs> they would have said, now, wait a minute here. <laughs> this is the prophet. These didn't come out of Mosaic law. And we're in the city. We're not out there. We, we can't have any uh, cattle. We can't have any uh, nomadic life. We're living in the city. Uh, you know, can't we make a few adjustments here, especially when God's prophet is telling us what to do? But they didn't. And God was just so pleased with this. Look what it says at the end, verse 18. And Jeremiah said unto the house of the Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because ye have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and have done according to all that he hath commanded you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before him, before me, forever. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, culture matters. Culture matters. Jonadab took seriously... God's cultural warning against what would happen if they had houses and lands and vineyards of their own. He took that very seriously. And he commanded a safe culture for his people. All right? And God commended him for that. So here's an example of, of a culture that served a family very well for 300 years. Uh, it wasn't that the father was commanding something unheard of. I mean, Israel had lived as nomads at one time. I mean, this was a way of life for them. Uh, but they had left that. And he said, look, this served us well, and we'll just continue. So that's, that's culture demonstrated. Now next, I want to talk about culture defined. Webster says, culture is a set of shared, notice shared. It's not individualistic. Culture is a set of shared attitudes values, goals, and practices that characterize an institution or an organization. Okay? Did you get that? It's a set of beliefs, values, and practices. Now, it's the practices that usually gets the bad press. <laughs> and we sort of get the idea that the practices militate against the values. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit later on 
that that happens in a lot of areas of life where we pit two things against each other that really should be working together. Okay? And so I told you that the message was about Anabaptist cultural integrity. Integrity has the idea of integrating. All right? So if culture is values, beliefs, and practices, what happens to culture if you minimize the practices that grow out of those beliefs and values? Well, you don't have cultural integrity. Cultural integrity is when all three of those are kept together. In fact, you go to any, we're just made cultural people. You go anywhere in the world, and if you sit and you watch and you listen, uh, the, the things that people say, the things they do, the places they go, the clothes they wear, the, the habits they have, you will soon figure out what their values are and what their beliefs are. What the plain people have tended to do is to not realize <laughs> that that plain lifestyle grew out of their beliefs and values. What were our beliefs and values? Humility. Unity. Uh, submission. Those were our beliefs and values, and you probably could list some more. And so that way of life discouraged self-expression because we're all going to do it together. You didn't go and say, well, now, uh, what kind of uh, a costume am I going to create for myself? No, no, no. That was already decided. There was humility. There was submission. There was a rebuke to self-expression. Uh, there were just so many things involved in, in that culture. And so that culture got minimized, and then Lo and behold, the opposite of those things began to express themselves in churches were in a tremendous struggle. Now, all churches develop a culture. <laughs> the charity churches developed a culture. I'll tell you what's... And when people look at certain groups, they say, oh, you're a charity group. So what do they see? Well, they see a premium put on hot preaching. They see a premium put on emotional responses. They see a, a sort of a premium placed on a variety of applications. Uh, they see practices like lots of revival meetings, altar calls, hanging veils, amens, <laughs> hands raised. <laughs> I mean, you could probably make the list. And the, none of these things are bad. I mean, I'm not, I'm not giving you things that are bad, but... but but the charity churches developed a culture. So people looked at a church like Shippensburg and they said, oh, you're charity. And we didn't have to tell them that we had any association with you people. They just saw that some of our practices were similar and, and they saw a culture, okay? What were the goals of the charity movement? Revival, evangelism. So that's what a culture is. A culture, remember, there are three things with a culture. Beliefs, values, and practices that express those beliefs and values. And what I'm calling for this morning is to, for us to allow, if we have distinctive beliefs and values, let's not stifle the obvious outgrowth of that, which is some practices that people can look at and say, oh, they believe in humility. They believe in unity. They do not believe in self-expression. They, 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 they have a different... Uh, a concept of life, and you can see it by their lifestyle. In fact, I think a, a good practice for many churches would be to sit down and in a men's meeting, what are our distinctive beliefs and values? And then actually give some discussion as to what practices could we put in place 
to encourage those beliefs and values that we're all going to do together. See, that's the part people have reacted against, doing it together, uh, because they, they feel that stifles some sort of personal experience. Okay. So now I want to talk about culture disclaimed. I'm going to define culture sort of narrowly now about, uh, as the practices. There's a tendency to think that cultural practices are in conflict with true spirituality. That they're arbitrary. That they're artificial. And there's been this tendency to pursue what I call culturalist Christianity. We believe that gospel truth inspired by the Holy Spirit will result in a spontaneous spiritual application. Now, I went through all of this. The reason why I'm speaking about this is I was a little boy growing up in a church that was going in the wrong direction, and I heard all this rhetoric. And I sort of wondered for a period of time, why is it it takes so much culture to make Christianity work? Why does it take such a heavy layer of culture? Because I grew up in a church where we all wore plain coats, the women wore black stockings, some of the women wore covering strings, that was encouraged. I mean, you get the picture. We were a very plain church. And I thought, well, yeah, shouldn't spirituality just flourish without all of this heavy layer of culture? And I had to struggle with that. And then I realized, <clears throat> finally, as I grew up, <laughs> that we are always creating, and I talked about this earlier, I'm going to describe it now, what I call false dichotomies where we pit two things against each other. I'll give you the, I'll give you the one that is in a never-ending conversation. Faith and works. <laughs> well, those are two sides of the same coin. Now, there's a tension between them. With these false dichotomies, there's always a tension. If, 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 you, if you go too much on the one side, it militates against the other side. And if you go too much on this side, it militates... Yeah. But they have to be kept together because they're part of the same coin. All right? But we're always doing this. Um, there's a certain group in our community, a very plain group, that for years did not have their own Christian schools. Because they believed that Christian schools trained children to be Christians, to have all the right answers, and they never had a genuine conversion. I could name the group, and you'd all know who they are. But for years, they did not have their Christian schools. They wanted their children to go to public school, and they wanted them to, to even uh, go down that road a little bit uh, so that they would get genuinely converted and wouldn't just give a bunch of memorized answers to things. And they made a great effort not to give their children an awful lot of spiritual, instruc spiritual instruction, but not, uh, yeah, not much spiritual instruction. Another false dichotomy is missions and faithfulness. That same group to this day does not have any emphasis on missions at all. In fact, they're scared to death of missions because they say missions always take the church down the wrong road. So you can have a faithful church or you can have missions, but you can't have both. And you probably could make a list, if you would think a little bit, of all the false dichotomies we generate. It's interesting that the Reformed Mennonites, who are very plain, they don't worry about the false dichotomy. The one we've created is you can have true spirituality or you can have cultural norms. If you have cultural norms, you won't have true spirituality. 
So there's this constant reaction against any kind of culture. When I say culture, I'm talking about something we do together. There's this constant reaction against that because we think that's formalism, that's dead traditionalism, that's going to ruin our, our uh, true spiritual life. Well, the Reformed Mennonites to this day not only don't have a Christian school. How many of you know who, how many of you know who I mean by the Reformed Mennonites? Well, I'm speaking Milton to... Hershey. Milton Hershey's mother. mother. Yes. Uh, they're a very small group. They lose most of their young people, and the reason they do is because they give them literally no spiritual instruction. They give them moral instruction. They teach them to be honest. They teach them to be hardworking. They teach them uh, to be pure. They te- all the good moral qualities they teach, but they give them almost no spiritual instruction because they want them to have a cataclysmic conversion. But they lose most of them. See, they've created a false dichotomy. A dichotomy means two things. I'm not getting myself defined here very well. Two things. And so what I'm saying is, if we're not careful, we create this false dichotomies where we, we pit these two things against each other and we go to the one extreme or the other. And it's very difficult to keep those two together, I must admit. It's very difficult to keep those two together. It's very difficult to have missions and not have people who go out there and... Uh, be uh, a bunch of other Protestants and see other people having a lot more success and come home and wonder about all this stuff we do here in our churches. Yeah, that happens. Okay? So this is a very difficult thing to do. But God never intended <laughs> for faith and works to be separate. God never intended for moral instruction and spiritual instruction to be separate. God never intended for churches to just build church and never have missions. God never intended. He intended for these things to be kept together. All right, cultural integrity is broken when a church attends only to its beliefs and values and principles. Now, there's a brother in our church who says, as long as we teach the principles, we're safe. The Bible says there's to be coverings, and so we're going to teach, and all our women are going to wear coverings, because that's in the Bible. Well, what he doesn't realize is when you've opened that up to self-expression, after a while, people have done everything they can think of to do with the covering, and they've learned not to really appreciate the, the whole thing. And then they say, does the Bible really teach that? <laughs> That's what happened in the church I grew up in. Well, well, let's just open it up, just so it's a head covering. It can be a bandana, it can be a hat with flowers, it can whatever, <laughs> just so there's a head covering. Well, after you've had all this self-expression, after a while that runs its course and everybody then wants to just discard the whole thing. And so then you go back to to, uh, questioning whether the principles are even true. Does the Bible really say you shouldn't be divorced and remarried? Does the Bible really say that you, you have to wear a covering? Does the Bible really say that it's wrong to go to war? Those questions all come up. If you don't guard the practices and make sure that you have practices that give tangible, visible expression to your beliefs and values, those beliefs and values will eventually be questioned. And so I'm calling for cultural integrity, where where we keep it all together, that we don't stifle the practical expressions of what we believe and what we value. The default culture is the world. The default culture is the world. For those who have adopted worldly practices and values, and listen, I'm speaking out of my own experience. For those who have adopted worldly practices and values, 
because they discarded the, the practices that supported their beliefs and values, there will finally be a debate about the principles. <clears throat> and that happened. And the church I grew up in, none of the values that I would have uh, grown up with are there. There's self-expression, pride, everything's all there. Uh, the very opposite of what we said we believed. My final point, culture defended. Cultural practices powerfully influence us. If you don't believe it, I'll give you an example. In the spring, <clears throat> on our lawn, we have these beautiful white flower, uh, yellow flowers all around in our lawn. You call them dandelions. Does anybody know of anybody who loves dandelions? <laughs> Bless you, brother. <laughs> Do you know that if dandelions were considered a valuable display for a couple weeks in your lawn, and you had to pay $10,000 to have a nice display of them, everybody would have a lawn with dandelions. I'm talking about the power of culture. All right? We do not realize, and I'm going to talk more specifically at the end, how this affected me. Our plain culture, when it, when it was kept in balance with the right kind of emphasis on beliefs and values and true spirituality, was a powerful thing. It really was, for me, personally. A full expression of culture that has practices that reinforce those beliefs and values. You have something really powerful, all right? But people say, well, doesn't Colossians chapter 2, I want to look at this because there's so much misunderstanding as to what Paul was teaching in Colossians chapter 2 where he says, uh, don't let any man judge you in respect of a holy day and this and that and the other thing. And, and uh, well, we won't turn to it because I don't, I don't want to take the time. And people say there, that Paul says, touch not, taste not, handle not, that, forget about that whole process. Is that what it teaches? Well, if that's what it teaches, then Paul violated it himself. Because he told the women not to have braided hair, not to be wearing gold, not to be wearing pearls, and not to be wearing costly array. Well, what's Paul saying, touch not, taste not, handle not? He was violating his own rule. And so did Peter. He says, don't, make sure you don't have the outward adorning, the plaiting of hair, the wearing of gold, and putting on of apparel. <laughs> so if Colossians 2 means we're not supposed to pay any attention to any details, then Paul and Peter both violated their own rule. Okay? So what is Colossians teaching? What's that passage about? I, I, I want to deal with that because that's always brought up as a rebuttal against any kind of... Uh, common practices that, that where there's accountability and people required uh, as a group to practice something together. Well, he was writing to Jews. He was writing to Gnostics. And they had specific things that you had to do to get close to God. If you were not circumcised, you could, would not be accepted with God. Now, we never say that about any of our culture practice. I never believe for one moment that if a person didn't wear a plain coat, he couldn't be a Christian. That's, Colossians 2 has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. It has to do with people who get ideas about things that if you don't do it this way, 
you will not be a Christian. I'll give an example. If you're not immersed, you have no relationship with God. You've run into that one. It has to be immersion or you were not baptized. In fact, that one group I referred to earlier, they would never give us Mennonites any, any satisfaction that we were even Christians because we were not baptized because they had a specific way of baptizing. Well, once you've gone down the immersion route, you're still not done. Is it one time backwards? Is it three times forwards? Is, you know, <laughs> I've decided if I was ever going to baptize anybody, I'd probably do it one times backward, three times forward, and then I'd dump up three buckets of water on their head, and we'd cover all the bases. That's what Colossians is talking about. Or true legalism that says we don't have radios. And we don't. And so I saw this weather radio that I could buy. Oh, it's a radio. That's the kind of stuff Colossians is talking about. It's not talking about an outworking of our beliefs and values where there will be variety between our groups, but it's the same principles being applied. Okay? It's interesting... (laughs) I mentioned Paul and Peter. (laughs) Do you know what the specifics that they gave all focused on? Dress. (laughs) And that's the hot spot. (laughs) But when they they got down to giving cultural specifics, it was about dress. You take that for whatever it means, there'll probably be some discussion at lunchtime. (laughs) I thought that was very interesting. The applications are not to make us more spiritual, but to protect certain beliefs and values against known dangers. Now, do you folks permit the use of alcohol in this congregation? Oh, you'd like that. (laughs) We don't talk about it. Well, we do in our congregation. In fact, a couple young people one time were uh, in a foreign country and they were under a tremendous amount of pressure and there was just a little bit of uh, alcohol on the table and, and uh, when they got home, they were in real trouble. Does the Bible say you're not to use alcohol? No. So why do we do it? Why do we say no alcohol? Because the use of alcohol is dangerous. And so to protect all of our people, we all say... Together, we will not use alcohol. Now, I'm not saying you have to do that. I mean, that's a cultural, that's a cultural norm. The cultural norms are not absolute. You might have some other way of handling the uh, problem with alcohol. That's fine. But that's what, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about practices that guard beliefs and values and safeguard and give us a safe culture in which true spirituality can thrive without the threats of self-expression, individualism, Pride, disunity, rebellion. These cultural norms help protect. It. They're not a complete answer. You can be rebellious and you can be uh, individualistic and all that and do all the good, right things. We all know that. But that does not mean that you have to create a false dichotomy. All right? Chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 19, says, Growth comes from union with Christ in a body of believers. Believe it or not, it says that in 2.19. So, what are the beliefs and values that Christian people have said 
come out of the Gospels? Well, the first one is humility. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child is same as greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. That's what our plain culture focused on. In fact, if you go back a century ago, to a century and a half ago, you will find that was a strong emphasis among our Mennonite people. Humility. At a funeral, you said almost nothing about the deceased for fear there'd be some kind of vainglory. And I can think of a whole lot of other things that we were just really hesitant about because humility was a value we guarded with certain practices and certain things we did. Self-surrender. Jesus said, I can my, my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which just sent me. Surrender. Our plain culture encouraged that value. We all did it together. We surrendered. Maybe we didn't quite agree or always understand, but we just did it. Of course that can be taken to an extreme. Of course people have done crazy things with that. But that, but that does not negate the fact there was some value in pursuing that with some very definite practices. Equality of brethren. Be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all of your brethren. Our plain culture addressed that in very practical ways. Unworldliness, we all know that one. I could quote many scriptures on that one. And unity. The call is constantly in the gospel and the epistles to unity. And I started asking myself after a while, why are we celebrating variety? I get the impression sometimes we celebrate variety. Can anybody give me one scripture that tells you that you should celebrate variety? The scripture is calling us to be of one mind, to walk together. Now, there's a variety of gifts, but not necessarily a variety of, of, of uh, lifestyle. I don't, I don't see that. I see the very opposite in the Bible. Um, and if we're going to have variety, well, then let's uh, understand. This church will do some things differently. This church will do these things differently, and this church will do some things differently, and that's just fine. If you stood them all up together, you'd say, oh, they're all practicing the same principles. So that's the kind of variety I want to see. <laughs> and that's not a problem, okay? In fact, in my day, if you had stood all of those groups that I listed, except maybe the Methodists and the United Brethren, if you'd have stood the Brethren in Christ up, you'd have stood the Church of the Brethren up, you would have stood um, the Conference Mennonites up, you'd have seen a great variety of, of, of applications, but you'd have seen the same principles. They would have looked like they were a unified group in terms of principle. So let's quit celebrating variety. Let's start celebrating unity. Okay? In fact, we do have cultural practices that are not based on Scripture. The great cry was, what's not in the Bible? Uh, can somebody tell me a verse to, as to why the women are sitting here and the men are sitting here? Somebody have a verse? Somebody have a verse to tell me why we don't have a piano up here? I can't find any verses. In fact, we do quite a number of things that we have no verses for. Why do we do them? 
because somehow down through the years we have learned that those practices guard certain values. We don't have a piano because I know from my study that if we had a piano, the four-part singing would begin to wane. And why do I know that? Because the Brethren in Christ Church, there was a little Brethren in Christ Church near us that we attended when they had meetings, revival meetings, and they were very plain, and they sang, if anything, they sang better than the Mennonites. They were good four-part harmony singers. You go to Brethren in Christ Church today, they're all singing in unison with a piano and an organ. So I value four-part a cappella singing. And so we do some things to keep that value alive. Um, does anybody, now you folks homeschool, and that's good, but there's some groups that have Christian schools. Do we have any verses in the Bible about having homeschools? I mean, there are just a lot of things. So how did we get into this mentality that we have to have a verse for everything? And there can't be any kind of cultural norms that guard certain values that we have come to appreciate, like a cappella singing. I can tell you why we have separate seating. In the first place, that's what they did in the synagogue, and the early church followed that pattern. Uh, another reason, of course, we kneel for prayer in our church, and uh, you know that problem. And, uh, and then you have singles. Uh, if you're going to sit as families, where are they supposed to sit? Uh, or, or visitors that come in that don't have family. I mean, our pattern just lends itself very well to some of those issues. But I don't have any verses. I don't have any verses. So how do we get into this mentality that we have to have a verse for everything? That there, aren't, there isn't such a thing as cultural practices that support certain things that we value that probably that grow out of the gospel. But we don't just have a verse. Well, I'll tell you how we got into it. The, 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 the Mennonite church drank heavily of Protestantism and fundamentalism. And that was a back to the Bible which was good because they were fighting modernism. But they're the ones that generated this idea that you have to have a verse for everything. And so the Mennonites followed right along. They took their disciplines and they put a verse after everything, no matter how stupid it may have sounded. <laughs> and we taught a whole generation of people that if you don't have a verse, it's not legitimate. That is not true. And we don't really believe that. But that's what we've come to sort of perpetuate the idea that if you have to have a verse for everything. It should be a good principle. It should be supporting a good value. It should be port, uh, uh, creating a, a good environment for the gospel to prosper. Yes, all of that, but not necessarily an exact verse. Wesley, Wesley and Finney both lamented at the ends of their lives that they had not adopted a standard of attire for their people. In fact, we visited Wesley's church in England when we were there, the chapel where he preached the last 10, 15 years. And the guide said, the first sermon he preached in this chapel, he spent 15 minutes scolding the women for their worldly attire. And he was lamenting that at the end of his life. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about the plain coat. I wear one. I certainly don't judge anybody who doesn't wear one. Please get that clear. And I wanted to say at the beginning of this message, you can disagree with everything I said, and it's all subject of discussion. But it's some things I wanted you to think about, okay? Uh, it's okay if you don't want to wear a plain coat. But I want to tell you what it meant to me and why I still wear it. I don't think you've ever heard me get up and say anybody else should wear it. I'm just talking about myself, okay? 
I grew up in a church where that was our identity. That identified who we were. And I remember very distinctly that I and all the boys that joined the church looked forward to putting on a plain coat because that gave us an identity. It answered that one question. I said, there are two important questions. Who am I and to whom do I belong? And I remember the day I put on the plain coat. It was a day of happiness. Now, there came a time when people hated this thing. That's because of what was happening culturally. It wasn't because there was any uh, uh, reason for that, okay? I was only vaguely aware of the significance of the plain coat. I don't know if I even knew I could, uh, could even just give you much defense for it at that time. For me, when I first put it on, it was basically just a sense, now I belong to the congregation. It gave me a sense of identity. And listen, we're living in a generation where people don't know who they are and who they belong to. And listen, we would serve our congregations well if we helped to give a little bit better identity to our people. But it had served me well in those years. It, it gave me an identity. And it was a little bit like putting a gospel sticker on your bumper of your car. Now, I don't have one on my car. And I'll tell you why. My wife will tell you I'm as absent-minded as can be, and I make stupid errors driving. In fact, when people ride with me, they always want to drive. <laughs> And I don't want the gospel connected with my driving. <laughs> That's what the plain coat did. It gave me a sense of the behavior that was expected of any person who wore a plain coat. I wore it to Shippensburg University. I was the only person on campus. And they all knew who I was. I tell people, if you're going to go to university, secular university especially, there are three things that have to be established. One is, you're going to be there for a reason. You're not just going to get a university education. Number two is, you need to know who you are. And when you step on campus, you need to make sure everybody there knows who you are. And the plain coat served me very well in helping me with that. Not only that, the plain coat today gives me a sense of solidarity with all of God's plain people. Whether I'm with the German Baptists, whether I'm with uh, uh, the Beachy Amish, no matter who I'm with, it gives me a sense that I these are my people. I belong to these people. These are, this is who I am. I value that. I value that so much that I wear it when nobody else does. Because that's... I appreciate the identity. I appreciate the reminder of who I am. I appreciate the solidarity it expresses with all my plain brothers and sisters. Did I ever believe that wearing a plain coat was earning me any kind of brownie points with God? I don't recall that I ever did. Did it stifle my passion for true spiritual vitality in union with Christ? You know me. Has it stifled my spirituality? I don't think so. Has it, helped take, has it somehow taken my focus off of the important things of the gospel? I don't think so. Am I what I am in spite of my plain coat? I don't think so. I think I am what I am because of my plain coat. 
boy, this is strong stuff. <laughs> You're certainly thinking, now I'm trying to put plain coats on all of you. I'm not. I'm not. I'm only, tell, I'm only giving my personal testimony. Probably you've looked at me and said, why is this guy still walking around with this relic that he should have discarded a long time ago? I'm telling you, it has meaning to me. It's an important part of my life. It always has been. No. The plain coat has helped me to focus on humility. I don't have to worry about, you know, how am I going to appear? I, just, that's already decided. It helps to focus me on the denial of self, the temptation to go to the store and say, well, now, look, if I put this on, I think people will notice me better. No, it pretty well deals, deals with that. It helps with a sense of height, a sense of submission to my brethren. It helps with unity with all the plain people. So I'm only giving that as one example of a cultural practice that actually can serve well. I'm sure there's some people, in fact, I have a brother. I'll just be honest with you. I have a brother that's living with a woman unmarried. And when he comes around our plain people, he wears his plain coat. And we also. Okay. People do such things. But that does not mean we have to create a false dichotomy. That we can't have the real on both sides. And put them together. And let the practices give strong encouragement strong support, and strong reinforcement to the values and beliefs that that practice expresses. Let's strive for a genuine integrity of culture that clearly articulates a unity of belief, values, and practices that express those beliefs and values. However you folks work it out, and it'll be different here than it is at Shippensburg, that's fine. But the principles will be expressed and reinforced and encouraged by the practices that you have and the practices that we have. And no, they're not steps to God. They're not something that if you do it here, we have to do it at Chippensburg, or we can't be called Christians. No, that's, we're not talking about that at all. We're talking about culture and what it does to our beliefs and values and how it supports and, and encourages. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you this morning that you have made us cultural beings and we can decide to have that culture work for our betterment. We can decide to use that culture in a way that makes us uh, more like, uh, likely to, to, to exemplify the principles of the gospel. And Lord, if there is anybody here who is doing any practice to cover up uh, something less than the gospel, I pray there'd be conviction. And, oh, God, I just pray, bless this congregation. Lord, I pray that they will not go down the road all these other groups went by making everything individualistic and cultivating all those nasty, unchristian character traits that always arise when that happens. Bless us in our fellowship today. May we encourage each other to have a vital relationship with you and with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now, would you please turn to 350 for a closing song? <laughs>